You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. In 1604, Anne Gunter, age 20, began suffering from fits. She was investigated by several doctors, including two top physicians from Oxford, who concluded there was nothing physically, naturally wrong with her. Still, the fits not only persisted, they worsened. What were these fits, exactly? Well, that's a bit of a roller coaster. When she was brought before English court in 1606, witnesses relayed a bevy of symptoms. Some of those symptoms sound a lot like epilepsy quivering, shaking, stiffness, convulsions. Her eyes bulged, her mouth foamed. She would go blind or deaf, only to have her senses return as suddenly as they'd left. None of that is what landed her in the star chamber, though. During these fits, some said that she got taller, larger, grew significantly in strength. Her clothes would unlace themselves. Sometimes her pulse would stop, but still she lived. She'd speak in tongues, languages she didn't know. She could see what people had in their pockets and purses, or in their deepest, secret selves. She could even see the future. And then there were the pins, which poured in great quantities from her every orifice. They gushed out her mouth, shot from her nose, passed in her urine. Mysterious growth divination, and peeing needles are not normal symptoms of epilepsy, as you might know. But most folks in 17th century England knew what they were symptoms of. Maleficium. Anne Gunter, the people who examined her concluded, was possessed by demons. Contrary to how you might imagine it, This was not a conclusion reached frivolously. While most people alive in the 17th century believed in bewitchment, it wasn't generally a conclusion folks leapt to easily. Outside of some very notable panics, such as in Scotland under King James VI, and of course, Salem, Massachusetts, possession was considered a serious diagnosis of exclusion. Doctors, professors, and jurors tended to look at accusations of witchcraft and curses with a scrupulous, skeptical eye, looking first for natural medical explanations, and, if they came up wanting there, they turned that skepticism onto the motives of the claimant. But at least four physicians, including two from Oxford, remember, independently verified Anne's case. She was, in the highest, finest thinking of the age, definitively possessed. 
And Anne knew what, or rather who, was to blame. Elizabeth Gregory, who lived next door. Anne accused Elizabeth of bewitching her with spirits. But when the latter was tried for witchcraft, she was acquitted. And soon, Elizabeth filed a countersuit against Anne and her father, Brian, for false accusations. Anne cracked under interrogation. She admitted that at first, she didn't think she was possessed, but rather that she suffered from mother's disease, also known as hysteria, a condition caused by, um, being a woman. But when the initial physicians gave her a clean bill of health, her dad convinced her to fake at being in Satan's clutches in order to screw over his neighbors. The Gunters and the Gregories had a long-running feud, stemming in part from the Gregories being uh, widely loathed assholes in the community, but probably more importantly from a football match years prior during which Brian had straight-up murdered two of the Gregories on the field. And I mean that literally. He actually murdered two men during a soccer game. Brian, for his part, admitted on the stand that yes, he had encouraged Anne to lie, and had administered small doses of poison to her to induce vomit. Both were convicted. Just what happened to Anne and Brian after the trial is lost to time. Records show Brian lived until 1628, and that Anne married a year after her appearance in court, so the punishment couldn't have been too severe. Anne Gunter's story is probably the perfect example of how I'd expect to cover the topic of possession because the testimony and evidence for Anne being besought by demons is as strong as you could ask for. And yet, in the end, it's just superstition and fraud. It'd be easy to take this example and say, see, no such thing as possession. People used to be so dumb. But that would be to ignore a key factor. Anne Gunter probably had epilepsy. Her speaking in tongues was probably just speaking nonsense. Her strength and growth just a figment of the magically-minded imaginations of those examining her. Her supposed clairvoyance and telepathy were just cold reading, and anyway, she failed to reproduce them in court. Nearly everything about Anne Gunter's story can be swept away as disease and parlor tricks. But no one has ever explained the pins. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. It's Halloween, and the final show of our abbreviated Kickstarter season. So we're looking at a slightly different kind of story than usual. Like Anne Gunter, it's a story of possession. And, like Anne, it might be a story of illness. But mostly, it's a story of those unexplained pins. Today's episode, Bewitched bothered and bewildered. Like Anne Gunter's case, our main story takes place in England. London, actually. But rather than 1603, we're going back to the far-flung yesteryear of 1994, a time when, almost unimaginably, England was still barely under the spell of would-be wunderkinds, the Gallagher brothers, and their Beatles-but-not-as-good-and-30-years-too-late concoction, Oasis. You can imagine the first character in our story listening to their predictable three-chord melody on the radio of his cab 
as he ferries passengers back and forth across the west end of the stormy city. In fact, you'll have to imagine it, because there's no way we're paying for the rights to an Oasis song, and that is a promise I can make. When you donate to The Constant, we will not spend your money on licensing derivative songs written by assholes. So go ahead and picture the music playing as our cabbie searches out a fare. The incoherent, asinine rhetorical questions whinnied out as he's flagged down by a young, well-dressed, good-looking man. Do you mind the music? The driver asks. But his customer doesn't answer. He just mutters to himself. It almost goes with the song, the cabbie thinks, as the man in the back seat lurches forward, beating him about the head and face. You can nearly hear it, right? The bubblegum sing-song building to a crescendo as the cabbie slumps over unconscious. The instrumental break where he comes to, now in the back seat himself, while his assailant drives on through the London rain, screaming to some unseen third party, screaming crazy things, frightening things. While in the back seat, caked in blood and confusion, the cabbie wonders if he's going to die. Verse, chorus, verse. Bridge, chorus, outro. We'll call him the young man, because his name has been removed from the record. The young man was 22 when he was brought in for stealing a taxi and robbing, assaulting, and kidnapping the driver. This was not his first brush with the law. He'd previously been arrested for a sizable list of smaller crimes— shoplifting, truancy, pilfering. So when the interrogation began, police were a little surprised by how anxious he seemed to be about the possibility of prison. Interrogation might be a little formal. There was no question that the young man had done it. He was found with the cab and the victim, who easily fingered him. And for his part, the young man admitted to the crime. But with a catch. Did you steal the cab? The officers asked. Yes. Did you beat and kidnap the driver? Yes. So why'd you do it? The ghost made me. His interrogators didn't buy his story. Nor did prison staff. They thought he was faking, trying to get moved to a psychiatric hospital to avoid jail. But the law is the law. An English law held that he had to be moved to asylum for observation and reporting. That was when his case was assigned to the only two names we do know in this whole affair. Doctors Anthony Hale and Narsima Peninti. The young man was Hindu, born in India, and brought to England when he was six. He said there was a ghost, an old woman, who followed him around, watching him, listening to his thoughts. She would insult him, command him to do things, and, on occasion, she would possess him. A fog would appear, he said, wearing the old ghost's face, and it would settle upon him in his chest, stealing his breath, sucking into his mouth and his nose. He'd retch and wheeze and try to fight her off, but it didn't work. She'd take full control of him, from his fingers to his toes to his voice. Sometimes she'd possess him for half an hour. Other times she might take control for days during which time the young man could see and hear and feel and smell and taste, but from behind a dull haze 
He tried to fight back when she started doing bad things, but he seldom succeeded. And once, because he struggled, she took his body to a bridge to be struck by a train. She made him jump off right before it would have hit him. He'd gotten the message. Hale and Peninti ruled out malingering, or faking, as a diagnosis. The young man seemed very earnest and disturbed in his belief and his recollection of the ghost. Furthermore, he made a convincing argument that he had no reason to commit the crimes attributed to him. He had money, he had a car. He didn't need anything that he had stolen, and what's more, he was afraid of spending time in prison, and hated the stress and heartache his actions were causing his family. So Hale and Peninti concluded the young man was exhibiting typical symptoms of schizophrenia. Two symptoms mainly. Delusions, that he had beliefs that others did not, and hallucinations, that he heard and saw things that others did not. It was, frankly, an easy diagnosis. Delusions and hallucinations of the type described by the young man are first-order symptoms of schizophrenia as is the feeling of being controlled or compelled by a foreign presence. The case, and our story, might have ended right there, with a simple psychiatric evaluation. But instead, Hale and Peninti received a phone call from the prison chaplain. Before being moved to hospital for evaluation, the chaplain had ministered to the young man in jail. During one of these sessions, the chaplain saw a fog entering the cell wearing the face of an old woman. It descended upon the young man and seemed to take control of him. Several cellmates testified that they, too, had seen the ghostly cloud envelop the young man. None of these witnesses, according to they themselves, had any knowledge of his story. The doctors then brought in their hospital chaplain to consult on the case. He concluded, as surely and as easily as the psychiatrists had reached their diagnosis, that the young man was possessed. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Here we now have two competing hypotheses. One, the young man is schizophrenic. Two, the young man is possessed. And each hypothesis has a problem. If the young man is schizophrenic, then how is it that other non-schizophrenic people are experiencing his hallucinations and delusions? Isn't the very definition of a hallucination that it is a sensory experience contradicted by the experiences of others? Isn't the very definition of a delusion that it is a belief not understood and shared by others? Yet the problem with the second hypothesis is even deeper. There's no such thing as ghosts, possession, or ghostly possession. And I understand that that might seem like a controversial assertion. Somewhere between 32 and 57% of Americans believe in ghosts, depending on the survey. And those numbers aren't outliers. They're actually kind of low. Most polls show higher levels of belief even than that in the UK and Europe. One survey showed that 87% of Taiwanese believe in ghosts. So the odds are that a good portion of you take umbrage with me saying, nah. And even those of you who are skeptical might recognize a kind of irony with the show largely about the foolish surety of human hubris making a flat declarative statement like, there's no such thing. Just because you've never had the experience, you might say to me, doesn't mean it's not real. But the thing is, I have had the experience. Numerous times. The first I recall was when I was in fourth or fifth grade. My older brother went off to college and left behind a treasure trove of adolescent life for me to plunder. The most important of these, the thing I coveted more than anything else, was a TV. It was old even at the time. It would barely be recognizable as a TV to anyone under 20, I'm sure. And it only got four or five channels. But damn how I wanted it. A TV in my bedroom. Can you imagine? Oh, the luxury. My parents were skeptical of allowing me to have it. I was too young, too distractible, I think. I don't know how I finally convinced them, or earned it, or wore them down, probably. But eventually, the TV was mine, which was exciting. I could watch Leno in bed. Oh, God help me, I watched Leno in bed when I was 11 years old. And it was heavenly until the night that it turned itself on I woke up in the middle of the night to the blinking on of the old cathode tube and quick as that it blinked back off another minute on again off and on once more then it started flipping through channels raising Lowering the volume. All while I lay, still as I could, under the covers. Because 11-year-old me had an understanding taken from who knows where that whatever was happening, pretending it wasn't, or at least like I wasn't aware of it, was the optimal strategy. Eventually, the display ended. The television shut off for good, and I transitioned from fake sleep to real. But this incident recurred sporadically at least a half dozen times over the next few years. Then there was the time at age 20, while staying at a Michigan cabin, 
that I saw a figure in the kitchen so fully that I called out to it, only for it to disappear. The time, a few years after that, where some friends and I were chased down a supposedly haunted road by a phantasmal car. I've had experiences aplenty. And more than that, I've been obsessed by them. Chicago is, if you'd believe it, a tremendously haunted city, and I can tell you about virtually every major scare in town, from Bachelors Grove Cemetery to H.H. Holmes' apartment to Bughouse Square to the mysterious couch tomb of Lincoln Park. I can tell you all about the best haunted sites across Cook County, and I will be overly glad to do so. I love a good ghost story like I love few other things. Ghosts are frightening and fascinating in equal measure. They key into an insuppressible part of the human mind and a universal part of the human condition. But they're not real. They can't be. For one thing, what would they be made of? Not many would argue that they're composed of matter, and that's a good thing, because matter is pretty easily observable and measurable. If ghosts were made up of any sort of matter, we'd expect there to be an almost endless amount of incontrovertible physical evidence to back them up. But even if they're not made up of hard, material stuff, pretty much every interpretation of ghosts has them able to interact with hard, material stuff. Whether they move things around, push or pull or lift or whatever. And that means that that, too, should be measurable and observable. We should expect roughly the same pile of evidence from a ghost that merely interacts with the physical world as the pile we'd expect from one that was a part of the physical world. Most believers would say, though, that ghosts are made up of some sort of energy. But energy, too, is measurable. It is foolish hubris to assume we know all the forces and stuff that exist in the universe. That's true. But when it comes to ghosts interacting with the world around us, that's not the same kind of claim as a cosmologist pondering the nature of dark energy. Although, honestly, I'm not super hot on dark energy either, but let's save that for another time. The stuff that interacts on a macro scale with stuff like TVs and kitchens and lamps and young men, that stuff we can be pretty confident about precisely because we can measure those kinds of interactions. There's another problem with the energy idea, though, and that problem's name is the second law of thermodynamics. The second law says that the total entropy of an isolated system can never decrease over time. That is, you can't get order out of disorder without bringing in some other source of work. So, for example... You can't unbreak an egg, and you can't unscramble the broken egg, and you can't uneat the scrambled egg, and you can't unshit the eaten egg. What's that got to do with energy ghosts? Well, let's go back to 11-year-old Mark laying in bed trying to pretend the television isn't flipping on and off. In his wildest imaginings, there's a ghost sitting next to the TV, poking at the console. Let's call the ghost Harry. Ghost Harry looks a lot like Living Harry once did, before whatever freak accident caused him to inexplicably die on the second story of a house that didn't exist before my parents bought it. He's got a beard, naturally, and coveralls, why not? But he's partially transparent and tinged green with his mysterious energy. Harry's body is long gone, 
probably in that crawl space 11-year-old Mark is so terrified of. So Ghost Harry is just energy. But as he presses at the TV, he's using energy. Because energy is the thing that does work. And channel surfing, as we all know, is definitely work. Therefore, each time he pops the tube on or off, Harry's spending a bit of himself. He's cracking the shell of his own proverbial egg. And you can't just put more yolk inside a broken eggshell to get it back to its old self. Even if Ghost Harry did nothing else but flip buttons, never moved, never glowed, glowing takes a lot of energy, he'd still spend himself into oblivion by the time he hit the community access channels. As long as there's a second law of thermodynamics, ghosts simply can't exist. And the second law is, perhaps, the single most solidly, confidently known thing about the entire universe. We'd sooner be wrong about gravity, or magnetism, or the periodic table of the elements. Entropy is probably the sturdiest piece of scientific knowledge we have. There's no getting around it. So the prospect of a ghost isn't just supernatural or beyond our understanding. It would be a miracle. As Scottish philosopher David Hume defined it, a miracle is a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity or by the interposition of some invisible agent. In the tenth section of his book, An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, Hume demonstrated why accounts or experiences of miracles can never be relied upon. Hume said, essentially, that we've got to take a miracle to court against the law it supposedly breaks. So, in the case of the haunted television, we've got to weigh the evidence for Ghost Harry against the evidence of... the second law of thermodynamics. On one side, you have the groggy remembrances of a prepubescent and superstitious boy as funneled through the 25-year-old memory of a somewhat unreliable podcast host. On the other, you have... the single most well-established law in science... Uh Uh-oh. Obviously, I lose the case. Because we can come up with a host of simpler, natural explanations for what I experienced than something that requires the suspension of the fundamental laws of the universe. Maybe somebody had a remote control nearby that was on the same frequency as mine. Or, come to think of it, maybe I was lying on my own remote. Or maybe the TV was just old and busted. Or I dreamed the whole thing. Or let my imagination get away from me. Any one of these, and at least a handful of other explanations, are more likely than Ghost Harry, by several orders of magnitude. And Hume concludes that that is always the case. That the experiences of people like 11-year-old me are never better evidence than the laws those experiences seem to contradict. People are prone to superstition and bias, prone to lie, prone to misapprehend and misremember, and, maybe most importantly, prone to love a good story. That means that all of my stories, and all of yours, and all of the ones that are somehow on the Discovery Channel of all places, and Ann Gunter's story, they all fall short. But again, nobody ever explained the pins.
Back to 1994. Doctors Anthony Hale and Narisma Paninti, the young man and the ghost woman. The young man didn't, so far as we know, have a TV when he was 11. But what he did have was an aunt who reportedly was jealous of his family's success. The young man, as well as his siblings and parents, alleged that during a family gathering, she took out that jealousy by feeding him and his brother cursed sweet rice. After that, his brother was taken by weakness and impotence that lasted for years. And as for the young man himself, he became followed, haunted, and possessed by the ghost of an old woman. The young man told his doctors that she had stolen the taxi in order not just to torment him, but to take it to visit her own grave. When his symptoms first arose, his parents were skittish about calling them possession, for fear that they'd be seen as superstitious foreigners. But they'd seen her too, and her pernicious effects upon their son's life and livelihood soon became too great for them to ignore. After conferring with the Punjari of their local temple, they sent the young man back to India to be examined and subsequently exorcised by a Hindu leader in their homeland. The exorcism failed. The symptoms persisted. He was then brought to an imam, Farukya Sharia, a Muslim exorcism procedure. This, too, failed to bring results. Not only did these two rituals fail to remove or appease the ghost, they seemed to further enrage her, and the young man found himself beset by her all the more and all the stronger. Desperate, he sought exorcisms from at least two Christian priests. Again, to no avail. But, importantly, all these people either experienced the ghost directly or were convinced of her by what they did see. This was the full history that Hale and Peninti found themselves with. So, schizophrenia or possession? What they knew for sure was this. Whatever the young man was suffering from, exorcism wasn't the answer. At least four failed attempts at such a cure could attest to that. So the psychiatrists took the step that seemed most obvious to them. They prescribed an antipsychotic, four milligrams of trifloperazine. And just like that, the young man's symptoms went into remission. Twelve weeks later, as late as they were able to observe, the ghost woman had not returned. That settles that, right? No, not entirely. Because remember, at least a dozen people witnessed or believed in the old woman. And that number includes at least six clergymen from at least three different faiths. And it may also include two psychiatrists, doctors Anthony Hale and Narisma Peninti. In their case report for the British Journal of Psychiatry, they seem to leave the door to the possession answer more than a little ajar. It could be that they were merely being culturally sensitive. Or perhaps they were simply cautious about hiking into the bramble bush that is distinguishing between belief and delusion. Or maybe, just maybe, they saw her too. 
I don't know. All I can tell you for sure is that their conclusion seems to thread the needle between psychiatry and faith, science and magic, suggesting that they might not be as opposed or as irreconcilable as we usually presume. And it's that conclusion that haunts me and captivates me more than any other good campfire tale. The existential, epistemological jump scare is right there in the title of their paper. Exorcism-resistant ghost possession treated with clopentazole. That's one hell of a pin, right? And that is a wrap for the Kickstarter season. While I've been in the booth recording, I see that we just passed our goal. That's amazing. Uh, But we've still got until Friday, November 2nd, before we close this sucker out. So, uh, why don't we try a stretch goal? (laughs) Our season one finale included me almost getting our logo tattooed on my body before I ran screaming away from the parlor. If we can raise 500 more dollars above our goal, that's three grand in total, well, it'll be time for me to make good, bite the bullet, and get the ink. I'll even make sure to get some audio and photos so you can experience my hilariously irrational fear up close and personal. Thank you so much to everyone who's donated and everyone who's about to. I'm both happy and sad to say that we've sold out of copies of Counterfeits for those who donate $35. I wish I had more of them to offer, but I'm straight out of author's copies now. However, for anybody willing to pony up $100, they can still get a copy, along with a personalized message during a future episode. In the next couple of months, there will be a couple of special episodes, but Season 5 will begin in earnest in January. And folks, I'm pumped. I shouldn't say any more about what I've got planned, but, oh man, the season premiere, I'm I'm champing at the bit to get it out to y'all. Finally, if you're listening to this after the Kickstarter is over and missed your chance to donate, or if you don't have the money right now, don't worry, I understand. What I'd ask is that you take a minute, though, to rate and review the show and share it with people you think might like it. That, frankly is the most valuable thing you can do to help make the constant grow constantly better. Thanks. Until next time, from the home of Lizzie Coswell, who was stabbed to death by Edward Rothalt on November 18th, 1905, and whose screams can still be heard from the place of her murder, 5100 North Lincoln Avenue on nights when the moon is full, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant.